I want to briefly describe a couple of other items available for purchase. A book that's entitled The New Nature. You know, David in Psalm 51 verse 5 says that uh, in sin did my mother conceive me, which says that from the time of conception on, we have a sin nature. It isn't something that we acquired to ourselves after we were born. We were born with a sin nature in us. And uh, what is our sin nature? The Bible defines it, what it is. But then, what about our new nature? And how do we get our new nature? And what exactly is that? And these are the, the kind of things that we deal with in this particular book. And uh, we deal with uh, Old Testament passages that relate to this subject, but the key New Testament one is Romans 6, 7, and 8, which I'm convinced is the most significant passage in all the Word of God on the equipment that God has given to us as believers to live the kind of life that God would desire us uh, to, to live. And so we're dealing with the heart of the Christian life and uh, what equipment has God given to us to help us to live a life that would be pleasing to the Lord. I'm sure you're aware that among Bible-believing Christians there have been all kinds of arguments about spiritual gifts. And uh, this is about a 60-page booklet that we've written on the subject of spiritual gifts and uh, what exactly is a spiritual gift and who all has been given a gift or gifts. The Bible makes it very clear that every believer without exception has been given at least one spiritual gift, at least one. And they are God-given abilities to minister to other people. They're not given for the benefit of the one who has the gift, but they're given as a stewardship for that person to exercise their ability to minister to other people uh, with them and all the rest. And so we deal with that. uh, What are the spiritual gifts? How can we discern how we've been gifted by God to minister? And we deal with, are all the gifts that were in the New Testament available today. And we give biblical evidence dealing with at least two of them that have been hot issues among Bible-believing Christians, and that is the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And one of the intriguing things is, when I researched this, uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 14, where he's talking about the gift of tongues, bases it on an Old Testament passage that relates to the people of Israel. And so the gift of tongues in the early church was uniquely related to the people of Israel who had seen Jesus, miracles, heard his teaching, but then rejected him. And it was intended by God to be a sign of judgment upon that generation of people of Israel who rejected Jesus as their Messiah and Savior that was going to come upon them exclusively for that generation of the people of Israel. And we deal with passages that indicate that, which means, therefore, that when that generation was gone, the gift of tongues was taken away. It was, it was a sign to them. It was a sign to them that they were going to come under the judgment of God because they had the privilege of actually seeing the Messiah with their own eyes and witnessing his miracles and then rejecting him. Sign of judgment coming upon them. And so we, we deal with that in in this particular booklet and also demonstrate from the scriptures that there are no prophets today receiving new revelation from God. This is the full revelation that God has given for us at everything and for the church today. 
Now, in chapter 10 of Daniel, uh, we noted how this heavenly being came to Daniel to try to give him the final revelation that Daniel was going to be given in his search. God, what's going to happen to our people of Israel? You know, with everything you've already revealed to me. And that revelation, the content of it, uh, really is contained in chapters 11 and 12. Chapters 11 and 12. And so in the opening verses, the first 35 verses of chapter 11, the heavenly being revealed to him again uh, the fact that Greece had a great leader who was going to conquer Medo-Persia, but then that leader, Alexander the Great, was going to die uh, very shortly, just maybe three or four years after he completely conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. And as we saw earlier chapters, that his four leading generals would subdivide his uh, Grecian kingdom into four divisions, but only two of those divisions would have great significance, particularly for the people of Israel uh, and everything. Uh, And those two major ones were down in Egypt and up in Syria. Egypt, the southern neighbor of Israel, Syria, the northern neighbor of Israel. And when you go through the first 35 verses of chapter 11, uh, it describes how those two Grecian divisions were going to wage war back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth against each other. And again, goes into detail about Antiochus Epiphanes, the the, uh, Syrian ruler, how he was going to try to force the people of Israel off into false worship and, and the, worshiping the chief Greek god Zeus and all the rest. And, uh, but it gives a lot more detail. And we don't have time to go through all the detail, but in our commentary again, we deal with all 35 of those verses. And who was the king of Egypt and the king of Syria at this particular time? And it ends up again with Antiochus Epiphanes dealing with them. That's the first 35 verses of Daniel chapter 11. When you come to verse 36, we come now not to a past ruler that's going to be a problem for Israel, but a future ruler for Israel. And many Old Testament scholars believe there is that gap of time between the end of verse 35 and the beginning of verse uh, 36. And you may want to turn with me to Daniel 11 and look at verse 36. Verse 36. And the king shall do according to his will. In the future, there's going to be a king who will demand that his will be put into effect, be put into effect. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. In other words, he wants to be exalted to the level of deity and be the greatest god that's ever been worshipped by human beings upon planet earth is what he was going to do. He shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods, literally monstrous things against the God of God. He's going to be a blasphemer against the true and the living God. Obviously, Jehovah, the God of Israel. And he shall prosper uh, till the indignation be accomplished. Again, there's that term indignation until... God's program of chastening the people of Israel for their rebellion is accomplished. So in other words, this is going to be the last ruler over Israel. 
who's going to go after that nation. And God will use to chasten the last generation of Israel before Jesus comes in his second coming to planet earth. Then it goes on to say, uh, neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. Now a lot of people say, well, that he must be a Jew. Because they often talk about the God of the fathers. You know, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That may be true, but the problem is the word translated God here has a plural ending. It's Elohim. And that I am ending on it is plural. Elohim. And sometimes it's used for God because of the plurality of the Godhead, the three persons, but many times it's used for pagan gods, plural. And he'll have no regard for whatever god or gods his ancestors worship, nor the desire of women. Now a lot have said this must mean that uh, he's a bachelor. (laughs) He doesn't have a man's normal physical desire toward a woman. Or some say, well, maybe he's going to be gay. He has a desire toward men, but not toward a woman, and that type of thing. And so uh, back when Henry Kissinger was the Secretary of State for America, he was a Jew and he was a bachelor. And some overzealous Christians wrote a tract saying, he's the Antichrist. He's described right here in Daniel uh, 11, verse 37. And they uh, scattered that tracked all across the country, but not long after that, he got married and shot the whole thing down. (laughs) What's talking about here is objects of worship. Notice it talks about he has no regard for the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God. The whole context is an object of worship. Well, what would that be, the desire of women? What was the desire of most Hebrew women in Bible times, to be the mother of the Messiah. And so they would often call the Messiah the desire of women. And so what it's saying is this man, this future ruler that's going to persecute the people of Israel, he'll have no regard for any God that's been worshipped. And one of them is have no regard for the Messiah, for the true Messiah. He will oppose everything the true Messiah would be and what he would stand for and all the rest. And he has no regard for any God. And here's why. He shall magnify himself above all. This one wants to be the only God that's worshipped by mankind. Now when you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul's describing the Antichrist, Paul practically quotes these statements from Daniel chapter 11 and verse 37 is the Antichrist. That he's going to be a blasphemer. He's going to take his seat in the temple of God and declare that he is God and require all of his subjects to worship him as God and those who don't, he will eliminate them from planet earth. This is a description of the future Antichrist. Then verse 38 But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces. Now, the idea is this. He's going to make warfare his God. You know, whatever is the ultimate thing that drives a person and they're committed to is really their God, is really their God. And so this this man is going to be a great man of war. 
He's going to bow before the, the God of armaments, and everything is what it's saying. And a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. The implication seems to be he's going to expend great quantities of wealth in order to train and equip his armed forces. Because this man, when he comes to power, is going to want to rule and dominate the entire world. The entire world. It's going to, at great expenses, will he go to try to accomplish that particular goal. Seems to be the implication. Verse 39, thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God. Well, he makes war basically as God. Makes war his God. Usually we don't worship war. Usually people don't worship war as a God. But again, this is what's driving him. Warfare, to conquer the whole world, bring it under his one-man control. That's the altar before he bows and worships, you know, conquest of, of the whole world for his honor and, and for his own glory. And then it says, uh, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory. Uh, he's going to exalt his God of war by conquering, conquering, conquering more and more and more parts of the world to bring under his one man uh, dominion. And then it says, toward the end of verse 39, uh, he shall cause them to rule over many. What that's saying is, as he conquers uh, new uh, groups of people, he will turn over sub-rule under him to some of his most devoted followers to exercise his rule over these newly uh, conquered groups of people. That's how he'll honor those who bow before him and worship him as God. He'll give them authority under his rule to administer his rule on his behalf over these newly conquered groups of people. And finally, he shall divide the land, he shall divide the land as he conquers new geographical areas of the world. He will reward his most devoted followers by turning over rulership of those newly conquered areas of the world. So he will honor uh, his most devoted followers in positions of rule or with ownership of new places of land. And notice, for gain, literally for a price, is what the Hebrew says. The idea is this, for those people to get those honors and gifts from him, they have to pay a horrible price. They have to sell their souls wholesale to this man and worship this man as God. And you know, Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says that when this man takes a seat in the temple and decrees that he is God, those who have rejected the Messiah up to that point as their Savior, God will send them a strong delusion so that they will end up believing Antichrist claim that he is God. And once that happens, they can't get saved. Once they worship this man as God, they cannot get saved. They will thereby seal their doom for all eternity out of the judgment of God. So what's being described here in Daniel 11, verses 36 to 39, is the future Antichrist of the revived Roman Empire, that little horn we saw in, in uh, Daniel chapter 7, who after you have this 10-division federation with 10 equal co-rulers, this man rises 
from within that revived Roman Empire, and as he does, he overthrows three of the original ten rulers and thereby gains control over that future revived Roman Empire. Now, with that in mind, and this is just the context of what we see for the rest here, look at verse 40. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. Now right away, that verse poses some questions for us. First of all, what is meant by the time of the end? The time of the end. Interestingly, the Bible divides all of history into two ages. All of history into two ages. The first age is the age before Messiah is here on the, in the world, literally ruling the whole world on behalf of God. In other words, the age before the second coming of Jesus Christ back to planet Earth before he sets up his kingdom. Paul in Titus calls that the present age. That's the age we're living in right now, the present age. It's the age before Messiah comes to earth at his second coming and sets up God's kingdom rule upon planet earth. But then, the age after Messiah comes to rule the world, the Bible calls that the age to come, the age to come. If you read uh, Hebrews, Chapter 6, verse 5, it talks about the age to come, the age to come. And it's talking about the age when Messiah is here, ruling the world on behalf of God. Well, what's being described here is the end time of the present pre-Messianic age, the, the end portion of the present age before Messiah is here, ruling the world on behalf of God. Well, what would be the end time of the present age? before Messiah comes to set up God's kingdom rule upon planet Earth. The last seven years, the tribulation period, the tribulation period, that's the last portion of the present age we're now living in before Messiah comes and sets up the age to come, the millennial kingdom, God's kingdom here upon planet Earth. So what we're being told here is, in verse 40, what's going to take place now from verse 40 on are events of the future tribulation period, of the future tribulation period under the rule of the Antichrist. Now, the next thing we have to ask here is this, who are the king of the south and the king of the north here? Well, when you, when you go to verses 1 through 35 of Daniel 11, which describes the ruler, the Grecian ruler down in Egypt, and the other one up in Syria. They are called, the ones in Egypt are always called the king of the south. And the rulers of the ones in Syria in verse 1 through 35 are always referring to the ruler of Syria, north of Israel. Now that's past history. And verses 1 through 35 were fulfilled before the first coming of Christ. But here we have them introduced again in the future tribulation period. The king of the south, and in, in light of the fact that they've been referred to over and over again in verses 1 through 35, which were fulfilled before the first coming of Christ, we know that in chapter 11, the king of the south is always the ruler and nation of Egypt, south of Israel. And that the king of the north 
in chapter 11, whether before the time of Christ in verses 1 through 35 or after the uh, first coming of Christ here in, in verse 40, the king of the north is Syria, the ruler of Syria, the northern neighbor of Israel. And you know, those two are in the news tremendously right now, Egypt and Syria. One, they've overthrown the previous ruler. The other one, they're trying to overthrow him there in Syria. So that in this context, since Daniel is not told, these are different kings to the south and the north from those in the first 35 verses, we're safe in concluding they're still the same two nations, Syria and Egypt, Syria and Egypt and their rulers. But now, notice, the king of the south and the king of the north are going to push at him. Who's the him in this context? Who was just described before verse 40? The Antichrist, the Antichrist. And so when we stick with the context, the implication is the him here is the Antichrist. And so this is indicating that during, uh, coming up to the future tribulation period, Syria and Egypt are going to jointly attack the Antichrist, the Antichrist. But there's a problem with that. Where are those two nations located in the Middle East? It's going to be obvious by the end of verse 40, Antichrist is not located in the Middle East at that time. He's going to be somewhere else in the world, ruling over his revived Roman Empire. Well, if they're in the Middle East and he's not, how can they jointly attack him? It seems to me Daniel 9.27 is the clue to that, where we saw earlier today that at the seven, beginning of the seven-year tribulation period, Antichrist establishes a binding covenant with the nation of Israel in the Middle East. So strongly binds Israel in the Middle East to himself and his revived Roman Empire that he will regard Israel as an extension of him and his Roman Empire in the Middle East. And therefore, he'll regard any attack against Israel as an attack against him. And that's why he will guarantee Israel's ironclad protection against any enemies that come against them. And so I take it that what's being described here is when Syria and Egypt, coming in the, in the future tribulation period, jointly attack his Middle Eastern ally, Israel, keeping his covenant commitment, he's going to invade the Middle East with his revived Roman Empire armed forces. And so look at the end of verse 40. He shall enter into the countries, which says he's not over there yet, but it's a result of this joint attack against his ally Israel. He enters these countries. They're in the Middle East and shall overflow and pass over. Now, it's pretty obvious, as we're going to see when we come then to uh, verse 41, that he attacks first north of Israel, north of Israel, because he doesn't come to Israel until the very next verse. So apparently, when he invades the Middle East, he's going to attack Syria first, which is north of Israel, and deal with Syria. And then, after he deals with Syria, notice verse 41, what, what he'll do. He shall enter also into the glorious land. What's the glorious land? Israel, the land of Israel. Once he deals with Syria and conquers it, now he begins to march his army south through the land of Israel. And notice, 
Uh, he shall enter also into the glorious land, and many shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. Now, back in Daniel's day, Edom, Moab, and Ammon were three nations that were the eastern neighbor of Israel. They were on the east side of the Jordan River, where the nation of Jordan would be today. The nation of Jordan would be today. And what it's saying here is this. As he's marching his revived Roman army south to the land of Israel, he's not going to take the time to cross over to the east side of the Jordan River to deal with the nation or nations that are over there at that time. And the reason he won't take the time is because he wants to get down and deal with Egypt. The other enemy, together with Syria, that jointly attacked his ally Israel. And he will get down to Egypt. Uh, look at verse 42. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries. The land of Egypt shall not escape. The land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the, all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. Literally, what it says is at his heels. The Libyans and Ethiopians will be at his heels. Now, let me point out something here. Ethiopia in Daniel's day was not the same nation that's Ethiopia today. You know, ever since back in Daniel's day, boundaries have changed and everything. The nation that's the southern neighbor of Egypt today is Sudan. Is Sudan. And I don't know how much you've known about Sudan over the last several years. But for many years, it's been totally ruled by a radical Islamic uh, political government. And the northern half of Sudan was dominated by the Muslims. But there were a lot of Christians in the southern half of Sudan. And you know, in, in just recent decades, the northern part have been persecuting the Christians in the southern part of Sudan. Missionaries who have ministered in the Sudan uh, give records of the Muslims coming down and capturing Christian pastors and literally nailing them to crosses, crucifying them. And they've also been capturing Christian and animist women and children and taking them up to the capital city of Khartoum, putting them on the slavery block and selling these Christian and animist women and children to wealthy Arabs there in the northern part of Sudan and everything else. Now, as you may be aware... Uh, just this past July, there was an election that took place in which it was now determined by vote to subdivide Sudan into two separate nations and let the Muslims have complete control of the north the way they want, but then they're not to be persecuting people who are in the southern part of the nation. And the peace lasted for a while, but just within the last several weeks, uh, in fact, you may have even heard, too, how the northern Sudanese have bombed a Christian school there in, in the southern part of the nation and are coming down again to try to uh, eliminate the Christians, particularly that are there in the southern part of that nation. So that today, what used to be uh, ancient Ethiopia is the nation of Sudan, which is the southern neighbor of Egypt. And Libya 
back in Daniel's day, but even today, is the western neighbor of Egypt. And so when it says here that he, Antichrist will have power over all the wealth, resource, and everything of Egypt, that the Libyans, and we'd have to say the Sudanese, were at his heels. In other words, he won't attack Libya to west of Egypt. He'll, he'll stop at the western border of Egypt and turn around so that the Libyans will be at his back. And he won't attack Sudan south of Egypt. When he gets down to the southern border of Egypt with Sudan, he'll turn around so the Sudanese will be at his back. He wants to gain complete control of Egypt because it was one of the nations that attacked his ally, Israel. And once he gets control of it, he's going to plunder it of its wealth, as it says here. He'll have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And it will look as if the Middle East is about to fall under this man's rule the emperor of the revived Roman Empire. But notice the first contrary word in verse 43, but contrary to the way it's going to appear, that he's going to gain complete control of that part of the world, contrary to that, uh, tidings, verse uh, 44, out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Well, Antichrist is down in Egypt, in complete control of that nation and robbing it of its wealth and resources, all of a sudden he gets very disturbing news from two directions, from the east and from the north. What possibly could be the content of that disturbing news? I would propose to you or suggest to you, this is where Ezekiel 38 fits in uh, to the future. And so if you would please, back up a book to Ezekiel and let's begin looking at Ezekiel chapter 38. Remember, Daniel and Ezekiel were contemporaries. They lived at the same time. They knew each other. And they ended up captive in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel went off to Babylon in 605 B.C. Later on, Nebuchadnezzar invaded uh, the land of Israel and so uh, in the, maybe within 15, 20 years after Daniel was carried captive, Ezekiel and other Jews were carried captive there to the land of, actually around the, the 570s B.C., 570s B.C., Ezekiel. They knew each other, Daniel and Ezekiel, so they were contemporaries. Daniel, of course, ends up getting a prominent positions within the Babylonian government, but Ezekiel is ministering to the other Jewish captives that are there in the land of Babylon. So God, around the same time that he gives the revelation to Daniel, is giving revelation to Ezekiel, uh, to Ezekiel here. And he's foretelling that in the future, there's going to be multinational militaries brought together to come to attack the nation of Israel and try to eliminate it from the face of the earth. And we have the names. Verse 5, Persia. What's modern-day Persia? Iran. Modern-day Persia is Iran. And you know what they've been declaring. And they desperately want to get those nuclear bombs so they could nuke Israel off the face of the earth. And they are determined that's what they're going to do. And you know that's going on right now. 
and Russell wrote, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? How are we going to prevent them, you know, from getting nuclear weapons and uh, rockets? That, in fact, they're trying to develop rockets that they can drop nuclear weapons on America. They know that. That's a fact, that they're doing that. So the first one is Iran. The next one, Ethiopia. And again, as I indicate, Ethiopia and Ezekiel and Daniel's day, today is Sudan. Uh, is Sudan, directly north of Egypt. And another one is Libya, and you know what's happened in Libya. Muammar Gaddafi uh, got eliminated, and now it's iffy who's going to take control. Probably radical Islamists, because the, at least the present temporary government has said it's going to be totally Sharia law, which is radical Islamic law and everything in Libya. Then, verse 6, Gomer and all his bands in the house of Targarma of the North Quarters and all his bands, and many people with you. Now, according to the best scholarship available today, back in, in Ezekiel's day, Gomer and Togarma were two different tribes of people who dwelt in what today is the nation of Turkey, the nation of Turkey. Uh, interestingly, the Muslims conquered the eastern half of the Roman Empire by 1453, 1453. That's where the eastern half of the Roman Empire was, where Turkey is today. And they had, uh, from like the 700s AD on, they just kept hammering away, hammering away, hammering away at the eastern Roman Empire until finally that empire totally collapsed to the rule in 1453. And as a result, Islam has been the dominant religion of Turkey ever since. However, in 1923, 1923, uh, the Turks developed a totally secular government, not a religious government, a totally secular government. And that continued uh, right on up, you know, through World War II, and right up until about three years or so ago. And you know, after World War II was over, uh, Turkey became part of the NATO uh, nations, etc. And they had friendly relationships with Israel. In fact, the, the Turkish secular government and Israeli government often carried on joint military maneuvers with each other at everything. And uh, back about 10 years ago, U.S. News and World Report, totally secular publication here, ran an article with this title, Will Turkey Be the Next Iran? Will Turkey be the next Iran? And at that point, there was an election that took place who would determine uh, to rule not the national government of Turkey, but the city uh, government of the capital city of Turkey. And it was a radical Muslim party that won that election. And U.S. News World Report quoted him as saying, uh, our next goal is to gain complete control of the national government of Turkey. And he said, when we do that, we are going to break off our relationship with NATO. And we will establish a totally Islamic NATO in this part of the world. Totally Islamic NATO in this part of the world. And, you know, the federal government, the, the secular government, had already uh, scheduled, I think about a, a, for a year or so ago, uh, joint military maneuvers again with Israel. But, Within the last several years, maybe two to three years, the radical Islamic party 
gained control of the national government of Turkey. They broke off, they canceled the joint military maneuvers with Israel and they rescheduled them with Syria, with Syria. And I don't know if you heard or read, but you know, Iran and Turkey have basically been enemies of each other, even though both of them are Islamic, enemies of each other. They have a common border and they had barriers there to keep the other party out, you know, from your territory. Well, last year, those two nations took down all the barriers. This was, came out of the news, secular news. And they claim we are now entering into a friendship relationship with each other forever, as an eternal friendly relationship between Iran and Turkey. Iran and Turkey. Now there's another nation referred to here. Look, if you would, please, at verse 14 of Ezekiel 38, where God says to Ezekiel, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto Gog, unto Gog, Thus says the Lord God, In that day when my people of Israel dwell safely, shall you not know it? And you shall come from your place out of the north parts, literally from the farthest, remotest parts of the north. Now, God is giving this, I take it from the vantage point of where Israel is located. And that this power that may become the leader of this joint military attack against Israel is the one that exists at the farthest parts of the north, remotest parts of the north, directly north of Israel. And so if you got a hold of a world atlas, put your finger on the state of Israel, and go up north, as far north as you can, still be in landmass, you'd end up in the heartland of what you and I have known, Soviet Union or Russia, Soviet Union or Russia. And so it appears that Russia is going to be involved in this multinational attack against Israel. Verse 15, you shall come from your place out of the north parts, you and many people with you, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. You shall come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days. The latter days of what? The latter days of our present pre-Messianic age. The latter days before Messiah comes to establish God's kingdom rule here upon planet Earth. Look, if you would, please, at verse 8. After many days you shall be visited, say to Israel, in the latter years, the latter years of what? The latter years of our present age before Messiah is here ruling the world. In the latter years you shall come into the land that is brought back from the sword, is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste, but is brought forth out of the nations. They shall dwell safely, all of them. You shall ascend and come like a storm. He's saying this now to Gog. You shall ascend and come like a storm. You shall be like a cloud to cover the land. You and all your brands, or bands and many people with you Thus says the Lord God, it shall come to pass that at the same time shall things come into your mind and you shall think an evil thought. You shall say, I will go up to the land, notice, of unwalled villages that don't have defenses and everything for them. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them, dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil, to take a prey, to turn the your hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. 
Now notice this. So statements here almost seem contrasting to each other. It's going to be in the latter days, the latter years of this present pre-Messianic age. But it's going to be an attack against Israel. When the Jews have returned from many nations back to their homeland, and they have taken uh, land that the Arabs thought was totally unproductive, and the Jews have made it very productive, and they feel so safe and so secure, the Jews in their homeland, that they've let down their own defenses. They've let down their own guard against enemy attack. Is that the attitude of Israel right now? No way. Israel today is loaded to the hilt with some of the most sophisticated military armament that mankind's ever developed. They've taken some of the best things that America's developed and improved them to be even more effective. Well, if this is going to take place, and yet it's a time when Israel feels so safe and so secure, when could this possibly take place between now and the second coming of the Lord Jesus? I take it during the first half of the seven-year tribulation period as a result of that binding covenant that Antichrist, who's the ruler of a great world power, the revived Roman Empire, guaranteeing their national security. If you're attacked because I regard you as an extension of me and my empire in the Middle East, I will regard that as an attack against me. And I will bring my forces immediately in to protect you and, and take care of you, is the whole idea. It seems to me that's the only period of time between now and the second coming of Christ back to planet Earth when Israel can feel so safe and secure that it lets down its own guard because of a, a powerful empire in another part of the world has guaranteed our national security. You know, the, uh, Israel, in order to maintain its defenses, has had to put one of the highest tax levies upon their citizens. The first time I had the privilege of going to Israel, uh, the bus driver that was taking our tour around was an Arab man, and he was taking us up the road uh, where he had to make a right turn to go to the Knesset building, where their counterpart of our Congress would meet. We wanted to see that. But when we got to the intersection where we had to turn right, there was another Israeli government building to the left. And he said to us, there's Israel's second whaling wall, that building. We said, wait a minute, there's only one whaling wall down where the temple was. No, he said, that's Israel's second whaling wall. Why do you say that? That's where the Jews have to pay their taxes. <laughs> and, and you can understand, if they have to levy such a high tax burden upon their people to maintain their own defenses, if a great power upon planet Earth guarantees we will protect you, you'd be tempted as a government for the sake of your people, lower the taxes and everything. And now we can feel so safe and so secure, we don't have to maintain our own defenses on our own. That's what's going to happen. Well, now notice, where are these nations located? Remember, Antichrist, when he's in Egypt, mopping it up, gets disturbing news from the east and from the north. Where is Iran 
located geographically in relationship to Israel? Due east. Where is Russia in relationship to Israel? North. Where is Turkey in relationship to Israel? North as well. But what about Libya? And what about Sudan? They're not east, nor are they north. Sudan is directly south uh, at everything of Egypt and Israel, and Libya is southwest. What about that? Well, in order for those two nations to join in with, with Russia and Turkey and Iran against Israel, Sudan is going to have to come right up through Egypt to get to Israel. And Libya, if they're going to uh, join in this by land, they're going to have to come, they're the western neighbor, they've got to come through Egypt to get to Israel. But who's in Egypt in complete control of it at that time? Antichrist, with his revived Roman armies at that time. So those two nations, Sudan and Libya, wouldn't dare confront the Antichrist and his Roman armies to deal with them. So that it seems to me those two are going to be forced to put their land soldiers and everything in ships and take them north to the Mediterranean Sea to join in with Turkey and Russia from the north. And so they will join in with them coming down from the north while Iran comes in from the east. And so it seems to me uh, this fits the disturbing news that Antichrist here is what is there in Egypt, has complete control of it, and is plundering it of its wealth and resources. In light of that, uh, turn, if you would please, back to Daniel chapter 11 again. Daniel chapter 11 again. He's there in Egypt, but while he's there, tidings of the east, of the north, shall trouble him. And therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. Make away many. When he hears the disturbing news that his ally Israel has now been attacked by these joint military forces of a number of nations, he, keeping his covenant commitment, is going to rush his armies north out of Egypt, hoping to destroy these other invading forces. But before he gets there, somebody else intervenes into world events with this. Go back to, to Ezekiel 38 again. Keep your finger here in Daniel 11. And look, if you would, please, at uh, verse 17 of Ezekiel 38. God speaking. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring you against them. It shall come to pass at the same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. Apparently tremendous earthquake. So that the fishes of the sea, the fowls of the heaven, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep upon the earth, and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down, and the steep places shall fall. Apparently tremendous landslides. 
Every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, said the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother. Apparently, what all these cataclysmic things that God's creating against these invading forces, those invading soldiers, in their panic to try to escape these things, will actually turn their weapons upon each other. Get out of my way, you know, because I'm going to be killed. You know, is this going to happen? And he says, verse 22, I will plead against him with pestilence, with blood. I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him an overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. God is going to intervene directly and supernaturally in world events against these invading forces, against his people of Israel. The end result is, by the time Antichrist gets up there, these invading forces have already been wiped out. Already wiped out. And it's going to be obvious to him there's something supernatural here because I'm the only other force that could deal with him and I didn't fire one man-made weapon at them. Something happened here very unusual. And I wouldn't be surprised that now this gives him a free hand to do what he wants in the Middle East. Because all these other opposing forces have been eliminated. And it may be, this is purely conjecture on my part, he will try to claim that he's the one who caused this destruction supernaturally of these forces. And therefore, in essence, he's going to claim, I'm God. Look at what I was able to do supernaturally without using one man-made weapon. And as a result of that, notice verse 15, he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas, between the Dead Sea and Mediterranean Sea, in the glorious holy mountain, Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is located. Now he comes to Jerusalem. And I take it this is when you come to the exact middle of the seven-year tribulation period. So I take it these other attacks have been in the first half of the tribulation period. But now he comes to Jerusalem in the exact middle of the tribulation period. Now that he has a free hand to do what he wants to do, he takes control of Israel's temple, puts a stop to the sacrifices and offerings, takes a seat in that temple, makes the blasphemous claim that he is God. And I take it, according to Revelation 13, that's when Satan takes possession of this man. And now, instead of being Israel's friend, Satan is going to use him as his tool to try to annihilate the nation of Israel from planet Earth. And that's why in Daniel 9.27, it says he, he comes, puts a stop to sacrifice and offerings, and then he desolates the people of Israel throughout the second half of the tribulation period. The second half of the tribulation period. Desolates them, trying to eliminate them from planet Earth. And Again, in Revelation 13, we're told that once Satan does that with him, gives him 42 more months, we're told that he will, he will go after the saints, people who have gotten saved during the tribulation period, for three and a half years, for 42 months, to try to eliminate those from the face of the earth who have gotten saved during the seven-year tribulation period. Seven-year tribulation period. Let me just take about another five minutes to deal with chapter 12, very quickly. 
of Daniel, the book of Daniel. It says, and at that time, what time? When Antichrist takes his seat in that temple in Jerusalem in the middle of the tribulation period. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of your people. Michael the archangel is the exalted angel that God has assigned to the nation of Israel to protect that nation from total annihilation. In this warfare, it goes on between the holy angels and the evil angels, between them. That time, once Antichrist takes a seat there and claims he's God, Michael's going to have to go into all that action because of what Antichrist is going to try to do to the nation of Israel, eliminate them from the face of the earth. He's got to go into action and prevent Israel from being totally annihilated. And he goes on to say here, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. Jesus, Matthew 24, verse 15, says to Jews of that future time, when you see the abomination of desolation, Antichrist, standing in your holy place, your temple, Flee as fast as you can to wilderness there because then will be such great time, such tremendous time of destruction, the likes of which the world has never seen before ever will be again. Verse 1 here of Daniel 12 is talking about the second half of the tribulation period that Jesus calls the unparalleled time of trouble in all of world history. Once Antichrist takes a seat in that temple. And uh, later on, like when you come up to uh, verses 4 and following, there are three heavenly beings that appear to Daniel. And two of them ask one of them, how long will it be to the end of this very unparalleled, unique time, this wondrous time in all of world history? Once that begins, how long is that going to last? And the heavenly being gives two answers. And what the Hebrew says, for one time and two times and a half a time, three and a half years. Once this begins, when Antichrist takes a seat there, this unparalleled time of trouble in all of world history will last for three and a half years, three and a half years. But he gives a second answer too, a second answer uh, as well. And in, uh, look at, at verse 7. I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swore by him that lives forever, that it shall be for a time, it's one time, and times plural, two times and a half, and when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people. All these things shall be finished. Now the Hebrew language here is talking about a hand that's raised up toward God in rebellion against God. And the literate says, this will last until the hand of my people of Israel are raised up in rebellion against me, is shattered until I break their stubborn rebellion and finally accept me and my Messiah for who he is. That's what it's going to take. And so God allows the Antichrist to be a chastening, chastening instrument against the people of Israel 
to break, shatter their uplifted hand in rebellion against God and his rule. Then, this unparalleled time of trouble will end. And that's when the Messiah is going to come out of earth in his second coming. And if you want to read how all that happens, read sometimes Zechariah 12 through 14. It tells in great detail. All the nations are going to come against Israel and everything by the end of the tribulation period. And again, they're wiping out the Jews. The last two verses of Zechariah 13 say two-thirds of the Jews living in the land at that time will perish very quickly. The one-third remnant get bottled up in the city of Jerusalem. And then those armies of all the nations of the world, all of them, without exception, come and surround the city of Jerusalem. And they are attacking that city to try to wipe out the one-third remnant of Jews left in that city. You know, Jesus, in Matthew 23, when it was obvious that the nation was going to reject him and he was going to be crucified, he made this statement, and notice he says it to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was the description of the Messiah for the people of Israel. And Revelation 16, verses 12 through 15, reveals that when the next of the last judgment of the seven-year tribulation period of God is unleashed, next to the last judgment, this is almost the end of the tribulation period, Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, are going to send demons, evil angels throughout the world to persuade the rulers of every nation upon planet Earth to bring their combined military might to one location upon planet Earth. And Zechariah 12 through 14 indicates that's the land of Israel. And so Zechariah, God speaking, he says, when the whole world bothers itself with Jerusalem, I'm going to make that city a crushing stone that will crush them when the nation of the world bother themselves with what's to be done with Jerusalem. He says that. Then he's going to say that when those nations come, God says, that's when I'm going to go to war against them when they come. But as they pass over the land of Israel, they're killing the Jews. And so, again, the last two verses of Zechariah 13, two-thirds of the Jews living in the land at that time will perish very quickly. And the one-third remnant left get bottled up in that city. Now their back is to the wall. There's not one human power upon planet Earth they can appeal to for help because the whole world is there with their armies trying to eliminate them totally from the face of the earth. It finally dawns upon them, our only hope of survival is God and his Messiah. They're going to cry out, God, send us your Messiah, the Holy One that comes in your name. That's our only hope of survival. Heaven opens. Zechariah 12, verse 9. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. When they, and they cry for the Messiah. Jesus comes out of heaven with the wounds of the crucifixion and his resurrected body. And they see that. It finally dawns upon them the very one whom their nation rejected his first time was indeed after all their true Messiah and Savior. They'll repent. The word repent means a change of mind. 
They'll radically change their mind from that of rejecting him to gladly accepting him. When they do that, Zechariah 13.1, God opens up a fountain of cleansing to them, washes away their sins. Now, in the opening verse of Zechariah 14, God says he plays a role, too, in bringing those armies against Israel at the end of the tribulation period. Satan, Antichrist, false prophet, want them there to destroy Israel. But God plays a role in bringing the armies there to break Israel's stubborn rebellion, to shatter that hand of rebellion that they've been lifting up toward God and his Messiah. And it will finally happen. And so once they repent and he cleanses them, then around verse 4 of Zechariah 14, Jesus steps down from heaven on the Mount of Olives and he goes to war against all these godless forces there that have Jerusalem surrounded. It's not a pleasant picture. If you read verses 12 through 15 of Zechariah chapter 14, the wrath of God that Jesus pours out upon these godless forces is horrendous, horrendous. This is Armageddon. The parallel of that is Revelation 19 in the New Testament, where John records a preview of the second coming of Christ. Jesus comes out of heaven as a warrior to wage war. Well, against whom? Verses 19 and following Revelation 19 pitted against Jesus are the Antichrist, the false prophet, Satan, the uh, armed forces and leaders of all the nations of the world gathered together in Israel, not only to eliminate Israel, but to wage war against Christ, to try to prevent Jesus from coming back to earth again. And Jesus, by simply stating wrathful words of God, Antichrist will be cast alive into the eternal lake of fire, where he's tormented forever, day and night. The false prophet who led people in the world Worship the United Christ of God, get cast into the eternal lake of fire. Then he destroys all the rulers and armed forces of the nations, rids them from planet earth altogether. In chapter 20, Satan is bound with a chain, the one that instigated all these things against Israel, and imprisoned in the abyss, the bottomless pit, for 1,000 years. And then Jesus as the last Adam restores God's theocratic kingdom to planet Earth. And we're told that he and the tribulation saints who were martyred or died of natural cause during the tribulation period will be resurrected. They'll reign with Christ. Paul in 2 Timothy 2 verse 12 says the church saints, we shall reign with Christ as well for 1,000 years here upon planet Earth. And uh, let me just conclude with this and then we'll, we'll take a look at the questions and everything. God's made it very clear through the word of God. He will not crush Satan and rid Satan from his rule over the world system that he usurped from Adam with a fall in the Garden of Eden. God will not crush Satan and rid his rule from the world system and restore his theocracy kingdom to the Messiah until the nation of Israel repents of its rebellion against God, and accept Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. It's not the Gentiles that have to do that, not the Samaritans, it's exclusively the people of Israel. Why? Because he's determined that the people of Israel be
be the spiritual leader of the whole world during Jesus' reign for a thousand years upon planet Earth. One of the major reasons he brought that nation into existence is he said to Mount Sinai, you're to be a kingdom of priests, my witnesses to the world. It's going to take them to go through all those horrible experiences to break that stubborn rebellion. But then they do that. Now they're ready to fulfill throughout the thousand-year reign of Jesus upon planet Earth the God-designated plan of being a spiritual leader of the whole world for God's honor and glory. God's honor and glory. Now, John, should we just take maybe a five-minute break? Okay. And then we'll take a look at least some of the questions. There's a lot of them.